This is the Real Digital Transformation podcast series, empowering technology and business professionals to succeed with digital transformation. Now, here's your host, best-selling author, Thomas Earl. Welcome back to the Real Digital Transformation podcast series. This is part two of our two-part interview with Howard Tierski, author of the best-selling book, Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance, and also founder of From, the Digital Transformation Agency. Hi, Howard. You mentioned design thinking. You reference a new version of design thinking that you recommend. Um, Could you just elaborate on that a bit more and help us associate it with customer journey mapping? Sure. So in the book, we talk about something we call design thinking 2.0. And design thinking has been around for decades, and it has proven to be a fantastic both mindset and set of specific tools and practices to drive more effective product development. You know, it was designed and built and conceived not necessarily specifically in the realm of digital products. It was pre the world, it was at the time design thinking was created initially in Scandinavia. Um, It was more for physical products. You're making a chair, you know, you're making a a phone handset or something. Um, And of course it's been successfully applied to digital products. Our version of design thinking is rooted in all the key principles that make design thinking great, but we have added a number of additional practices and specific ways of, of using it that are highly tuned towards kind of a digital world. Um, the, uh, and I think you'd asked, um, what was the other question about design thinking you'd asked? How it relates to customer journey mapping. Oh, how it relates if, to journey mapping. If the journey mapping is something we do first and then we proceed right. to design thinking, does it yeah. expand the map? Yeah. Yeah, it's a fantastic question. So. Design thinking is design, the the approach design thinking is heavily focused on thinking about the world in terms of products. How do I create a product in a very user-centric way? Empathy for the customer or the user of the product, ideating different possibilities for the product, testing those different approaches with users to ultimately create the very best possible version of the product before you manufacture it or launch it or whatever you're going to do. That is the heart of what design thinking is all about. Customer journeys are like a higher level. So if you think of design thinking at the 1,000 foot level, customer journeys are at, I don't know, you know, the 10,000 or the 50,000 foot level. Meaning that a journey very often touches many products. My journey of buying a car might start on, you know, cars.com, looking for a car I'm interested in. Then I might go to the Ford website and then I might go into the dealership and have some experiences that aren't digital, but they're still a product. It's a dealership in-person experience. I might use a kiosk that's in the dealership to help me configure my vehicle. Then I might have an app that tracks if I've ordered the vehicle, let's say it's a custom ordered car, you know, the status of my order and when it's going to um, come. And then, uh, you know, and then when I get the vehicle, there's a in-dash display and it's something that I have to learn to use to use the GPS. So I've got all these different products that make up my customer journey of buying, you know, my new Ford Mustang, whatever. That's the journey. And so when we do journey mapping, we're asking ourselves, how can we optimize that overall journey that may happen over the course of, it may happen over the course of hours. It may happen over the course of months. It depends on what you're doing. Design thinking is a set of practices, which is very synergistic with journey mapping in the sense that it's highly customer centric, 
but it's dr drilling down and saying, right now we're just going to focus on you know the app that you use to track the status of the car after you've ordered it. And how do we make that experience? How do we understand what user problems need to be solved? You know, I know want to know when the car is coming. I want to know if there's any issues with it. I want to see pictures of it as it's being created so I can get excited about it or whatever other problems the user wants to solve. And how do we make that thing at that real detailed level, the actual user interface, the actual way it's built, optimized for what it's supposed to do? So that's really the relationship between the two in my mind. One is a higher level, bigger perspective over a longer period of time, and one zooms in on one particular product in a series of products that make up of a journey and optimizes for that. Is it the same group that typically does both, or do you have specialists do journey mapping, specialists do design thinking, and then they perhaps collaborate? Or is it the design thinking team using the journey map as sort of a foundation for what they do? You know, in, 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 our, in our company, it's a combination of some people are similar as we move through different phases of a project, because after all, you have people who are doing customer research for a journey map, and then they can support uh, the insights that need to be carried into individual projects for design thinking. Uh, and at the same time, there are skills that you need in design thinking that you don't necessarily need in journey mapping. For example, prototyping. In journey design thinking, we build detailed prototypes of apps or websites or whatever it may be. Or if you're using it for a physical product, you might create a prototype, for example, of a store and how that store is laid out. Well, you don't do anything like that in journey mapping. So obviously, you need some different skills. So yeah, you're not going to use the exact same team for journey mapping and design thinking. Also, um, sometimes what happens is you do a journey map and that it implies the need for work in a, on a variety of products, some of which may be new. Like we're gonna, we need a chatbot. We never had one before. We have to create one. And some of which may be existing products like an app, let's say, but need to be substantially transformed. And then mm -hmm. you may have a lot of parallel activity. So you may wind up with five design thinking teams all working in parallel, one on the app and one on the chatbot and one on this website and one on the kiosk or whatever it may be. And so, again, you know, you're not necessarily going to say, oh, well, the only people that are doing that are the ones that worked on the journey map, because, of course, you might have had five people work on the journey map or even a dozen people. But by the time you get to the design thinking, you may have seven parallel teams of 10 people each or what have you. Um, and that's not necessarily always because they're from a consulting firm like mine. They may also be the employees of the company that are working on it. So that's one of the reasons why the journey map itself is such an important artifact, because you don't rely on the people who created it to be the only people who can take it and implement it. But you have a great storytelling tool, which can help everybody involved, everyone who's going to play a role in the transformation, which ultimately might be hundreds or even thousands of people that need to be communicated to. Um, so that's, so, so, so you want that level of independence. But having said that, if the people on the journey mapping team are available to get involved in the next step and work on design thinking on the actual products, that's a wonderful thing because you have that continuity. You have an organization where perhaps you have a champion leading the way to invest in everything you just described, but executive management is not convinced it's worth the extent of transformation and the investments that come along with it. Perhaps the organization is not struggling. They're doing just fine. They always have been historically. Some foresee that changing as the digital markets that they are in or entering are becoming more volatile and competitive and they want to do this. But others say, you know what, we just don't see a justification for it. And they bring you in to help 
with that justification, what are some of the things that, that you would say? Well, I think the first thing that you have to start with is empathy for the people who are resisting the transformation. Because it is completely appropriate when someone says, we want to invest an enormous amount of money in a massive transformation, which is inevitably going to be disruptive and risky, as any transformation is. It is completely appropriate for people to say, hang on a second. <laughs> is this really necessary? Can we avoid this? Because if you can avoid it, if you can continue to run a fantastically successful company and grow at the rate that you're trying to grow and deliver the profit margins and deliver the level of customer satisfaction that you need to, if you can do all that without a massive transformation, then good Lord, don't transform. That would be crazy. So I think sometimes when we're so enthusiastic about change and transformation that we see these people as, as obstacles. But in fact, they're playing a very important role. After all, you know, in any company, there's always tons of people bringing up ideas on how money could be spent. And if we do everything, we'll probably bankrupt the company. So hmm. starts with respect and empathy for people who are in that role and who aren't not yet convinced. Uh, and then I think the next thing is to create a burning platform why change is necessary. To get someone to agree with change, you have to get them through a series of a few steps. This is not in the book, by the way, but the first <laughs> step is to believe that change is necessary. The second step is to believe in a specific destination for the change. For example, we're going to eliminate our call centers and move everything to customer self-service, or we're going to take our current soft installed software product and then we're going to move it to the cloud or whatever else. So like, it's one thing to say we have to change. It's another thing to say, here's what we're going to change into. And then the third thing you have to get alignment around is how are we going to change? What is the process by which we're going to get there? And then to some degree, there's a fourth step, which is who is going to lead the change and, and how is it going to be sort of managed and you know, what's the governance, if you will, around that change going to be? That's a lot of things, right? It's not enough. I, can, I could agree with you that we, we better change or we're going to be in big trouble, but you could bring me a proposal and I could say, I totally disagree with that proposal. That's a perfectly valid thing. So I think the first thing you want to make sure you understand if you're dealing with resistance is what level of resistance are we talking about? Is it like you said, and the way you teed it up, I think was pretty clear, but in some situations it's not as clear. The first is to say, do you, you know, is this person resisting the idea of change at all? Or is they just, are they just resisting a specific change? Or are they even agreeing that yes, we need to change and yes, we need to move everything to the cloud, but you want to hire Accenture to come in for a hundred million dollars and do it in a year. And I totally agree with that way of getting it done or whatever. So just that's where you start. And, and if, as in your example, they, it's at the lowest level. If they're saying, listen, I think we're running a great business here. And when I hear this, I'm like, we've been doing it this way for 50 years and it's always worked for us. You know, what makes you think we need to change now? Um, and if that's the level you're at, that's when you need to say, okay, well, what's the burning platform? In other words, why is it that if we do nothing different than we're doing now, things will decline or we're going to miss a massive opportunity for upside? And so, I, you know, I think that gets to some very industry-specific things. It's about looking at trends, what are customer trends. Usually what you discover is that there are, you know, someone might say, well, our business is doing fine. But today, 
That's usually not really the case. If you look at the details, you look at customer satisfaction stats, you look at online conversion, you look at conversion, look at profitability, you know, you often find that actually it's not so fine. You look at market share, there are indicators of decline if the company has not invested in digital. And you can also look at competitors. And you might say, okay, well, let's say you're a house painting company. And someone says, well, okay, you know, we've been doing, you know, $10 million a year of house, house painting work every year for the past 50 years. Why do we need to change now? And you can say, well, look at this competitor that launched five years ago. And in the first year, they did, and it's a very digitally enabled approach. And in the first year, they did a million. And the second year, they did 5 million. And now that it's the fifth year, they're doing 100 million. They're 10 times bigger than you. They've only been around a few years because they're taking a different approach. Obviously, that suggests that there's opportunity that's being missed. So those are the kinds of things that you need to be able to bring, bring that, that picture of why is it that staying where we are and doing what we're doing doesn't make a good business sense. And then the mm-hmm. last thing I'd say about that level of that first level of I don't agree with change at all is to also take a look at what are that person's individual motivations for not wanting to change? Because sometimes people will argue that the change is not necessary for the business, even if in their heart they know that it is necessary. But in fact, that their, their rationale is a pretense. The reality is they just don't think the change will be good for them personally. For example, if someone's in charge of all the call centers at a company and you want to go and, and embark on a massive transformation to create customer self-service tools that are going to radically reduce the number of calls to the call center and maybe mean you won't even need so many call centers in the future, and that person has kind of an empire within the company focused around call centers, well, you know, maybe this change won't be so good for them. You know, maybe their budget will get cut. Maybe their importance within the organization will be reduced. Uh, when I was at Blockbuster many years ago, and I, I was a consultant there, and I, I, I talk about this in my book, and I mentioned earlier how I've been involved in some things that weren't so successful. That was one of them. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, when we were on a team describing a vision of a future of Blockbuster, which looked in some ways like Netflix looks today, uh, you know, episodic television and movies and all downloadable in your living room and that kind of stuff. And that was at a time when Netflix was still mostly shipping DVDs through the mail. Uh, there were a lot of people at Blockbuster who were at heart, they were retail people. You know, they'd come from JCPenney, you know, or they'd come from Lord and Taylor, you know, or, or something like that. You know, they'd come from The Gap. And, um, you know, that was their world. If you started to talk about a version of Blockbuster where you weren't going to need all these stores, that was just not like that sounded like the company was going in a direction that was going to leave them behind because they were 60 years old or 50 years old or whatever else and had spent 30 years running stores. So I guess all I'm saying is you got to take the moment to say, what is the real reason, perhaps, being a little bit of a psychoanalyst, that this person Mm -hmm. is, is really against this? And Depending on the reason, it might depend on how you address it with them. But if what they're really worried about is that they're going to be less important, maybe you can have a one-on-one with them and help them understand or, or help show them how, you know, I really need your help. You know, you're, if you've been running the call center for all these years, then you really understand the customer. You understand customer service. We want to put you in charge or we want you to play a major role in how we're going to create customer self-service. And all of a sudden, that person starts to see that there's a transformation for them, not just a transformation for the company. And one mm-hmm. which that could lead to them being more important, not less, making bigger bonuses, not less, having more 
importance, even if it's not more employees, maybe it would be, but even if it's not, but, but the, their status in the organization is going to go up and not down. And if you address it at that level, all of a sudden you might be amazed how the, the larger supposed reasons why they're resisting the transformation start to melt away because what it was really about was their concern about their own well-being. And I'll just end by saying, and we should have empathy for that because it's perfectly reasonable that people think of themselves first. We're wired to think that way. We like to think everyone just cares about the good of the company, but come on, we all have kids to put through college and retirements to, fu to fund and things that we want to do in our lives that cost money. And we don't want to see our careers negatively impacted by a transformation at the companies that we work for. And so it may sound selfish if that's the reason why somebody's resisting, but it is selfish, but selfish is part of the human condition. And so again, if we can have empathy for it and figure out how to engage that person and help them overcome that and realize that they don't need to fear the transformation, then of course, um, you know, we are in a much better position to try to get them on board. So that's not always going to work. And in the book, I talk about a lot of other strategies. There are some people who are going to be your sworn enemy no matter what you do. So I don't want to be Pollyanna <laughs> about it, but that can work sometimes. And as I say, we could, we could keep talking for another hour about this topic because yeah. overcoming resistance to change is a massive topic. But anyway, there's, there's some thoughts and answer to your question. Well, it's great because, you know, everything you just described highlights how part of all this is uh, a transformation of organizational culture and introducing a new mindset, new priorities, and that takes many people out of their comfort zone. So Indeed. Indeed. those, some adapt and some succeed and, and others resist. Um, so that's, you know, being diplomatic about it and having an approach of empathy as opposed to authority or force, I think is, is very wise. That sounds like a really good approach to this. Just to conclude, We've discussed in detail many of the benefits and motivations for customer journey mapping, design thinking, and realizing a vision of customer centricity in the digital era for our companies and organizations. But based on your extensive experience in this field, what are the top risks, pitfalls, challenges, unforeseen obstacles, what are the gotchas you need to look out for, whether it's related to specifically customer journey mapping or design thinking, or whether it's related to just overall establishing a roadmap, carrying it out. What have you seen go wrong and what tips can you give our audience as to giving them a heads up as to how they might be able to avoid some of those previous situations? Well, certainly, you know, this issue of resistance is one of the big ones. Uh, of course, we've talked at some length about that. I think, um, you know, I think one of the things can go wrong is that projects can get started with a lot of enthusiasm, but they fail to sustain the faith of those that are funding them. Not necessarily because they're resistant, but because, you know, when you've, when you've already spent $10 million or $20 million or $50 million and you're not seeing the needle move. You're not seeing more money come in. You're not seeing better, you know, higher levels of customer satisfaction. Um, you can start to wonder whether you're throwing money down the drain. And one of the challenges with transformation is sometimes you realize that there's some investments that are necessary that are dependencies for the goals that you want to accomplish, and they don't inherently automatically yield financial benefits. For example, maybe in order to be able to deliver the kind of front-end shopping experience that you need, 
You need to do a major data cleanup. You need to move a bunch of stuff to the cloud. You need to implement a new commerce platform. And you could do all those things and spend $10 million before you've ever changed the customer experience at all, because these are foundational things. It's sort of like, you know, you want a new house, uh, you know, first you tear down the old house and you pour the foundation and you put up the framing. You still can't live in it. You know, <laughs> it's, it's not done. And so you could say, man, I've spent all this money and, and I don't even have a house I can live in. Well, it's true. It's kind of a silly point because obviously you're headed in that direction. And the worst thing you could do is abandon the house. You know, sometimes you'll see construction sites like this where someone half built a building and then Lord knows what happened, you know, they ran out of money or something happened. And it's just left there being exposed to the elements and disintegrating because someone built half of a building and abandoned the project. Well, there's no greater waste than that. That's the last thing you want to do. So, you know, I, I think that uh, the question is, you know, what expectations are you setting up front about how quickly results will be delivered. Sometimes in the interest of getting something sold, we paint a rosy picture because we want to say yes, we want the funding, we want to get started, we believe in it. But in reality, it's an ambitious expectation and things don't always go on schedule and you encounter challenges and roadblocks along the way. And if all of a sudden you're not delivering as promised, the risk is someone says, oh, this whole thing might have been a mistake. And that might be the wrong conclusion, but people can, can draw those conclusions out of fear. And so I think there's a few things you can do to try to avoid this fate. Um, one is to set good expectations up front, to say to the people who are ultimately making the decisions, hey, look, you know, there are risks here. Let's not, let's not pretend there are no risks. Here are the risks. Here are the strategies that we're going to use to overcome or try to overcome the risks. Um, we're going to report honestly to you our progress, and we're going to report honestly to you challenges we face along the way. There will be challenges along the way some of which we may be able to anticipate, some of which we won't. But like, let's know what kind of a path we're starting out on together so that when you encounter some problems, it won't seem like you, know, you misled them. So that's one tactic that I think makes a lot of sense. And the second, and by the way, sometimes people are afraid to be fully honest because they're afraid that they won't get it. You know, If they're fully transparent around the risks, that then the decision makers will say, oh, you know, this is too risky. Um, I don't want to do that. And in fact, while that can happen, more likely, if you paint a picture of a project with no risks, people won't fully believe you. Most people who are experienced, whether that's your board of directors, your CEO, whatever else, they know that very few things are without risk. And so you can actually find that you increase the credibility and therefore you increase the willingness to fund um, when you are more transparent about risks. Mm -hmm. The other mm -hmm. tactic that you can use here is to... Um, make sure that you have some kind of quick wins. Don't take the mindset that, well, we have this huge transformational vision, but it's going to take two years to get there and everyone's going to have to wait two years until they get to taste the pudding. Uh, and so one of the things that we didn't get a chance to talk to, but certainly in the book, is that you know we talked about the five steps. So we kind of talked about the first three, which is to understand the customer, map the journey, and build the future. The fourth step is to optimize the present. And what that really means is find quick wins. Use the insights that you're getting from the research you're doing to not just paint that long-term aspirational transformational future picture, but also identify little things that you can fix in the short term to provide small incremental benefits. Even if it's not that impressive, you can measure those and then show the people who are providing funding for the project, hey, listen, we've spent 10 million so far and look at all the infrastructure we've built and all that. It's moving us towards our vision, but we've already 
improved our revenue by $1.5 million. You know, maybe it's not the 10 million, but we're already starting to see some results from the work that we're doing. And when you can do that in parallel, it gives you another argument and another reason for people to be patient and for people to continue to believe because you're starting to see signs of success. They're not completely and 100% on faith. That step four is basically designing our roadmap so that there are parts in it that provide early evidence as to what we're trying to accomplish. Yes, evidence and, and for both the company and its you know, people funding it, whatever, but also for customers. If you're disappointing and frustrating your customers today, the sooner you can start to show them improvements, the, the better for your relationship with your customers. And by the way, the fifth mm-hmm. step is lead, lead the change. And that was so much of what we talked about a few minutes ago, which is there's a lot of challenges to trying to lead change, to get alignment, to get people on board, and to deal with organizational resistance. So we kind of already touched on that. So I would just point out that all of that that we already talked about really is what the fifth step, the fifth and final step is about. And of course, it's the final step in the book, uh, leading the change. It's not the final step that you actually implement. You have to really start with leadership. But in the book, we talk about it last because I find it easier to first talk about everything that needs to be done. And then sum up by saying, well, if that's everything that you have to accomplish, what kind of leadership is necessary in order to do it? But of course, leadership starts at the very beginning. Wow, super. Thank you, Howard, so much. This has been extremely valuable and insightful. And I think many will appreciate the time you've given us here today. Before we conclude entirely, I just want to ask you more about your organization from the Digital Transformation Agency. Please tell us a bit more about the services you provide and the direction that organization is going. Uh, Sure. So we're a um, a digital consulting and uh, execution firm. We work with mostly large brands on helping them develop their digital strategies, including a vision, doing customer research, all the things we've been talking about, customer journey mapping, and building digital products with design thinking. Uh, we do things like the uh, websites and app for the Avis Budget Group. Uh, we did the recent AAA roadside assistance app. We work with other brands from NBC Universal to Airbus to ADP, Transamerica, and, and, and more on the continuous process of helping them figure out how do they continuously update their vision of what they want to be doing to make digital a tool that makes their experiences of their employees and their customers better, returns for their shareholders better, and then how do you execute on that vision every day to make sure that you're really making it real. So that's the work mm-hmm. that we do. And anyone who's interested in learning more about that business um, can go to from.digital, from.digital, and that is our website and plenty more information and case studies there. Uh, and anyone who's interested in learning more about my book, Winning Digital Customers, which is available wherever fine books are sold, <laughs> Amazon and Barnes <laughs> & Noble and whatnot. But there's also a website for the book, which is at winningdigitalcustomers.com. You can go there, read reviews and other things. And also you can download the first chapter for free. Awesome. Howard, thank you so much again. Thank you, Thomas. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. Follow Thomas on LinkedIn 